0: Well, it's going to take me a while to get used to not saying "turn with me to the book of Mark," but turn with me uh, to the book of Colossians this morning. It's kind of neat how it just happens that uh, with a new year, we're starting a new book, a new series. And if and if there's anything that would be fitting for us to go into the new year, uh, the uh, fitting mindset to enter the new year with, it would be that phrase: "Christ over everything." If you enter 2024 with that as your motto, as your theme, as your purpose you will be entering 2024 uh, in the will of God. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians today, and today we're going to be looking at the entire book of Colossians. All right? We're going to give an overview of it, give a sense of what the message is, uh, what, why Paul wrote it, and the, uh, uh, how it applies to us today. And then in the weeks to come, we'll be digging into it verse by verse, beginning in the first chapter and going through chapter 4. Uh, but today we're looking forward to uh, simply introducing the book uh, at, before we jump into it. Let's go ahead and just pray, ask God to guide us as we start this new series that we would uh, learn from it what God has us learn from it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the sufficiency of Christ. Lord, I pray that as we look into this book of Colossians, uh, your inspired scripture, that we would see the truths, that we would be faithful to the text, so that we would apply it to our lives and that we would submit ourselves to your Lordship, that you are over everything. Help us to live that way, not just think that way. And I pray you guide us this morning as we look in this book. In your son's name we pray. Amen. What would you say is the driving force of your life? Everyone has one. What, what's the center of your universe right now? What's your obsession? Perhaps it's a person, right? That person is everything to me, right? For every decision you make, you're just considering it, how it would affect that person, and your love for them gets you up in the morning. Just thinking of them lifts your spirits when you're weighed down. Perhaps it's an endeavor, right? Maybe like a sport you play or an occupation you're pursuing, right? You hear an athlete say, I live and breathe football, right? Or you wear t-shirts that says, ball is life, right? It is my obsession. It is the center of my universe. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've come to a place where you're the only one that you trust and the only one you live for, and your own happiness is your greatest pursuit, and you're the center of your own universe. You're the driving force of your life. You are your own obsession. Everyone has the center of their own universe. For every one of us. And as Jesus describes in the Gospels, he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, and that's what he's talking about there. But there's also constant competition in our lives for that center spot. Other people, other pursuits and desires seek to push their way into the middle, into the center of our universe, push their way to the top. So there's a competition for your heart, for your treasure. And this morning as we open to the book of Colossians, we're going to see a book that reveals to us a competition for preeminence. And we're going to discover a church that is wrestling with competing ideas and philosophies. And we will see Paul reminding them of the most important truth a Christian can ever hold to, Christ is over everything. Jesus is the center of your universe. Jesus is the driving force of your life. Jesus is your obsession. At least, he should be. And if he is, you'll be safe against the errors and empty philosophies competing for that center spot. As we'll see later in the series in Colossians chapter 3, Christ is your life, Paul says. And today I'll be giving an overview of the whole book so we can see the whole forest before we kinda walk through the trees in the weeks to come. And as we explore this book, I want you to ask yourself, is Jesus the center of my universe? Is Christ over everything? Not just generally, but is Christ over everything in my life? For introduction this morning, we're simply gonna read the the introduction of the book, Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, the initial greeting, and then we'll look all over the book as we seek to pull out the main theme. Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we dig into this book, let's begin by setting the stage for this book. This is one of the books of the New Testament that is occasional, and that doesn't mean happening every now and then, it means that this this letter was written because of, is prompted by an occasion, that something happened that prompted Paul to write a letter, it's an occasional letter. And as we consider the background and the city and the people receiving this letter, we want to see, first of all, that Colossae is a small town. It's located in the Lycus Valley in Asia Minor. Colossae was once a prominent city with a thriving economy. But, however, by the time 1st century A.D. comes around, Colossae has actually declined. And the reason for this decline was due in part to a major trade route beginning, that was being constructed, that passed through Laodicea. Perhaps you've heard that city name before. Laodicea was only located about 12 miles west of Colossae. There was actually a cluster of three cities. There was, there was Colossae, there was Laodicea, and then to the north there was the Hierapolis. But here in this small rural community, there was a church. And as this decline happened in Colossae, Colossae did become a rural community. It actually held a rather insignificant place in the Roman Empire. It was not an important city. It was not a bustling metropolis. It was not a strategic hub for gospel advance. There were far more strategic cities for that just 12 miles away. But there was a church here. And it is a church that was growing and maturing in Christ. If you skip down to verse 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 1, We read, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so while we see the city itself declining, we see this church in Colossae thriving. We also learn as we look through this book that Colossae, the church of Colossi, is a labor of love. And it's a labor of love from two individuals. First of all, a la- the labor of a man named Epaphras. The Apostle Paul most likely never met the Christians in Colossae. A fellow worker named Epaphras seems to be the founder and elder of the church. If you look in verse 7 and 8 of Colossians chapter 1, As after rejoicing in the gospel, it says, just as you heard it, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so Epaphras was the one who brought the gospel to Colossae and also the one who had reported back to Paul about their love in the spirit. If you were to skip to the end of the book, Colossians chapter four, verses 12 through 13, we see Epaphras again. And Epaphras is described as one who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras was giving all his energy to seeing the Colossian believers grow in maturity and confidence in God's will. Epaphras was their pastor, Epaphras was their church planter. Although they lived in a small town, these believers were everything to him. But it wasn't just Epaphras. Paul himself was invested in these Christians, and we see also the labor of Paul. Labor and struggle went far beyond, for Paul, a particular local church. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, we learn that Paul says that apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. One unique struggle for Paul is that he had a concern, he had an anxiety for all the churches that he was traveling to see and ministering to. And even though he had never met the Colossian church in person, he toiled and struggled for their Christian growth. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul continues, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those who are at Laodicea, again, just 12 miles to the west, and for all who have not seen me face to face. And there we get the indication Paul hadn't seen the Colossians face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So both Paul indirectly and Epaphras directly were laboring and toiling for these Christians. And they were overjoyed to see the Colossian church grow and love each other. And when you love someone deeply, you become deeply cautious and wary about any threats to that person. And we see the occasion that prompted the letter to the church. As we've seen, Epaphras brought the gospel to Colossae and discipled them. But he had traveled to visit Paul, who was in prison at the time. Paul writes this letter from prison. And Epaphras tell, travels to tell Paul about how the gospel was growing in the church there. But it seems that Epaphras also told Paul about a threat. That false teaching was creeping into the church, jeopardizing their stability in the gospel. And as a result, Paul writes this letter and sends it back to Colossae by the hand of a man named Tychicus, which we read in chapter 4, verse 7. And so it's a small town, it's a labor of love, but then we learn as we read this book about a big problem. You know, while attention is drawn to the godless philosophies swirling around in the in the big city, it's actually false teaching creeping into a small town, the simple church, that often goes unnoticed and unopposed, right? All of the attention is on the big cities, the big churches, and the philosophies that are swirling around there. While well, all the while, your small country church, your church in a small town, can be infiltrated by false teaching without any opposition. And this was a small town with a big problem. As we read through the book of Colossians, we discover there's a strange philosophy creeping into the church, one that threatened the gospel and the sanctification of the believers there. And Paul has written to churches concerning false teachings many times. First and foremost comes to my mind the book of Galatians, where he's very strong in his rebuke of false teaching. But in Colossians, he actually maintains a more encouraging tone. He, he warns them of the danger by elevating the superiority of Jesus Christ above all other philosophies. Now, the exact nature of this false teaching is hard to nail down. And as we observe how it's described in the book of Colossians, it becomes apparent that the false teaching is a form of syncretism. Now, syncretism is a combination of different worldviews and philosophies, a, a worldview buffet, if you will, where you take a little of this and a little of that, and combine it together to form your own philosophy. And its ability to creep right through the church doors reveals just how dangerous it is. And at this point, it becomes clear just how applicable and necessary this book of Colossians is to to modern-day Christianity. Because we live in a day of syncretism and pluralism. We take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of legalism, add a dash of mysticism, and create what is described in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, as self-made religion. And we take whatever we want and we say, that worldview has a component here I really appreciate, and this one has this thing over here. What if we just kind of throw it into a big pot, stir it all around, and see what comes out, right? And we, 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 we have a custom-made religion, We're susceptible to this, and if we don't have a firm hold on Christ, we too can be held captive by vain and empty philosophies. These philosophies can creep right through these church doors, and we can't just say, well, yeah, we we preach from the Bible. We, 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 We attend church every day. If we don't have an eye for these philosophies, this syncretism, this pluralism, we might become susceptible to it ourselves. And so as we read through the book of Colossians, it's going to be really important for us to diagnose exactly what was the problem that the Colossian church was experiencing. And most of what we learn about this Colossian heresy is, can be found in chapter 2. As I mentioned, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a syncretism. It's a combination of different worldviews that seemingly wouldn't really fit together, but are put together in this heresy, this false teaching. We'll see Judaistic elements to this teaching alongside of mystical and Gnostic teaching. Let's look at some of these elements to this false teaching. First of all, there's a taste of Judaism. If you look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul tells the Colossian church this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are speaking of Jewish feast days, Jewish holidays. If you look down in verses 20 through 21 of, the, of chapter 2, it says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you still were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not Touch And then referring to these Judaistic elements, that here is the, the food laws, the, the religious days that you have to observe. In a nutshell, you could say that the Judaistic element of this false teaching was saying this, you should be doing more. This philosophy used judgment as a tool to keep people In line, how do we know this? Well, back in verse 16 of Colossians chapter two, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or festival or new moon or Sabbath. There was this legalistic component in this philosophy saying, yes, I know that you're in Christ. I know that you've been saved by him, but you need to go back to these other things, these Judaistic elements in order to please him. You should be doing more. And judgment is the tool for this philosophy. You don't abstain from this food? You don't observe this holy day? You call yourself a Christian who loves the Lord and you're not doing this? You don't submit to this regulation? I do. Why don't you? And they use judgmentalism to guilt you into adopting this program for yourselves. And so there's this taste of Judaism, but then very strangely, Right alongside this Judaistic element we see this taste of mysticism and Gnosticism, quick note before we go on, what is Gnosticism, or as we said in the youth group, Gnosticism, all right? What is this, what is this philosophy? Well, it's this, this dualistic idea that the physical world is inherently evil and bad, and so you need to kind of you rid yourself, free yourself of the physical world so that you can attain this higher spiritual plane, and we'll see that even described in this book. But look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 where Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So in this element of false teaching, there was this, so asceticism is a severe treatment of the body, in a sense, if the physical world, the physical reality is inherently evil, we're treating ourselves harshly. Think of a monk on a mountain by himself in in solitude, right? He's ridding himself of all earthly pleasures so that he can attain this higher spiritual plane. Talked about worship of angels, that there was this worship, this adoration of spiritual powers that was going on. People were going on in detail about visions and how they'd reached this higher plane. And the, the tool, the weapon for this one, if, if for Judaism it was this judgmentalism, you're not doing this, you should feel guilty about that. Well, we read in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And so there's the tool for this Gnostic or mystic element. Wow, you haven't reached my level. Wow, you, you're not as spiritually minded as I thought you were. And so you feel disqualified. You feel perhaps lesser than. Another element where we see this is Verse 23 says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's his critique. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so if the Judaistic element is saying you should be doing more, this mystic element is saying you could experience more. You're missing out. You could say that the the weapon or the the message of of the mystic element is FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? The fear of missing out. I've reached this point. I've achieved this level of spiritual attainment. You haven't. We see a mystical, cultish element in which initiates can enter a higher plane of knowledge, find fulfillment in pride and personal visions, We read of worshiping angels. We see asceticism and severe treatment of the body in order to reach this higher plane. If you just follow these steps, if you just jump through these hoops, if you just follow my program, you'll experience more spiritual enlightenment than you've ever dreamed of. And in this small rural town, there is a massive spiritual battle. And these poor Colossian Christians have been placed in the crosshairs. And on top of that, these philosophies were convincing. They sounded good. How do we know that? Look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says we don't want them to delude you. It means they're deceptive. Plausible means persuasive. These were not arguments that were just obviously wrong. These were arguments that when they were brought up in the church, people would sit back and go, wow, that was good. I haven't heard that before. That, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Additionally, due to the fact that they crept into churches, they came across as philosophies that work well within Christianity, right? A false teacher is not gonna come in and say, reject Christ so you can follow my philosophy. That's not what false teachers do. They say, I love Christ too. I follow Christ too. Let me show you how I've learned to better follow Christ. In our day, many heresies and false teachings advertise themselves not just as working well with Christianity, but advertising themselves as Christianity. They use the Bible. They say, we love Jesus. And all the while, they subtly whisper, you should be doing more. You could be experiencing so much more. And we could go through example after example of how this happens in our church today. Can you think of times when a new philosophy, initiative, program arises within the church that communicates, of course Jesus is supreme, of course salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but if you truly love Jesus and want to follow him, then you'll want to hear about what I have to say. And Christians with good intentions figure that they've missed something. And they've missed this teaching because we all have blind spots, right? And maybe this this person is just showing me a blind spot that I've missed. And if I'm humble, then I'm going to acknowledge that I have blind spots and I'll listen to this philosophy and maybe there's something I can learn from it. Christians who desperately want to honor the Lord and lead their families in holiness will be sensitive to the claim that you're not doing enough. If you just follow these steps, you'll be honoring the Lord. And so this this philosophy can be very attractive toward Christians who love Christ. In fact, if you were in our small groups, there was a question there that says, what were attractive about these legalistic and mystic philosophies? And in our group, we're thinking, well, they don't sound very attractive, actually. I mean, it doesn't sound very fun, all this asceticism and severe treatment of the body. But think of it, if if you're maybe even a new believer who's simply approaching it as, I want to love the Lord, what do I need to do to love the Lord? and someone comes in saying here is the list and if you follow this list and if you do these things you will be following the lord or if someone comes in and says if you if you treat yourself this way if you if you go through these hoops you can reach this higher plane you'll experience so much more you'll be so much more spiritual you'll be so much more closer to the lord and and, and someone a, a new christian a young christian will hear that and say Oh man, that person's been a Christian longer than me. They know more than me. Maybe I should listen to what they have to say. And so in all the confusion, Paul offers a simple and straightforward solution to this. When we think about this false teaching, often we're left wondering, how am I supposed to discern? Maybe I'm a new Christian. How am I supposed to know if a false teaching is a false teaching or if it is legalistic or or mystic or, or anything else? Paul gives us a simple, straightforward solution and it's the lordship of Jesus. If you see Jesus for who he is first and elevate him to a place of supremacy, and if you measure every philosophy and teaching against Jesus, you'll stay safe from false teaching. And we see this highlighted in Colossians chapter 2, verse eight, where Paul says, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Can you see how Paul takes Jesus and uses him as the measuring stick, the the comparison for every single philosophy? How do we know if something is an empty philosophy, or if it's according to human tradition? Well, if it's not according to to Christ Christ is the standard by which we compare all other teachings. And so to the appeal, you should be doing more. What is our reply? Well, What has Christ done? What has he accomplished? What has Christ called me to do? To the appeal, you, should, you could experience so much more. Your reply should be, with Christ... I need nothing else. I have Christ, so I have everything. And so the Colossian church is is dealing with this false teaching. And we can see how this danger is is very real for us as modern day churches. And so how is Paul going to confront the problem in this book? As we walk through this book together we're going to see Paul elevate Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And as he elevates Christ, the emptiness of all other philosophies are exposed. We'll read in chapter 1 that the authority of Christ is preeminent. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, it goes in great detail of how Christ is the creator of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, that he is the head of the church. He is the preeminent one, and he's preeminent not just over our lives, not just over the church, but over all of creation, over the whole universe, Christ is preeminent. As we continue through this book, we'll read in chapter 3 that not only is the authority of Christ preeminent, but it's also pervasive, pervasive. That the preeminence of Christ, the authority of Christ, extends even to our homes, to our family relationships. This false teaching is promising greater fulfillment. Yes, you have Jesus. Let me show you how you can (coughs) achieve greater fulfillment by adding these, these things on to your life. But Paul is going to show that fulfillment is found in Jesus and nothing else. How does he do this? Well, he's going to make the point that only Jesus can solve your greatest problem. As we'll see as we go through this book, the false teaching is offering a magic bullet to your sin problem. If you read at the end of chapter 2, when he talks about asceticism and severity of the body, what's his critique? These things are of no use. They don't work in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so he acknowledges there's a common problem. What's the problem? The indulgence of the flesh. We have a sin problem. And so the main critique of these philosophies is that they don't do the job. They have an appearance of wisdom. They look good. They seem like they would work, but they won't work. As we meditate on the supremacy of Christ, we discover that our relationship to Jesus is the solution to our greatest problem. And if you look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see this concept introduced. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And there's the fuel for growth. There's the fuel for rejecting and turning from sin. And the following verses in chapter 3 will go through the process of Christian growth. It will say, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. And it'll go through a list of sins that we should put off. It'll talk about things that we should put on. Talking about living with one another in unity and love. He even goes through the family relationships and shows how your relationship to Christ and his supremacy over your life impacts your relationship to your spouse, to your parents, to your kids, to your employer. Christ is over everything and his supremacy impacts everything. And so instead of looking at a a, a program or a a self-help book or a new philosophy that says, if you just follow these steps, I guarantee you your marriages, your relationships, your Christian life will be fixed. Let me just give you a warning right now. If any person offers their teaching as a guarantee that it will fix your problem, run from it as fast as you can. Because only Christ can offer that guarantee. It is only by following Christ that you can reject sin and pursue holiness. Jesus changes Everything, And as you fix your eyes on him, there is not a single part of your life, there's not a single relationship in your life that is not transformed. And only Jesus can do that. You don't need these other things. And so only Jesus can solve your greatest problem. But there's one other implication about Christ's supremacy, his preeminence, is that only Jesus deserves your total Allegiance, And here we get back to that idea of competition of worldviews, competition for the center of your universe. If Christ is over everything, if he is all in all, if he is the head of the body, the church, if he is seated at the right hand of God, then he is the only one who deserves your allegiance. To give your allegiance to another philosophy, to another formula, to a program, to a spiritual leader, is not just foolish, it's actually spiritual adultery. It's treachery. It's giving to something or someone else what only Jesus deserves. Have you ever met someone, or perhaps you have been guilty of this yourself, where your allegiance and your love for a philosophy, or perhaps a person, is greater and more passionate than Jesus. And your argument is, well, this person points me to Jesus. But your love and allegiance is for a person. It's for a program. It's for a philosophy. That's treachery. Can God use other things? Can God use tools? Can God use spiritual leaders? Can God use the inside of other believers to point us to Christ and encourage us toward Him? Absolutely, as long as that's what they're doing. They can be of great help. What we learn in this book is that we are servants of Christ. He is our good master. And if Christ is over everything, there are some major implications for us as Christians. Not only do we not need these empty philosophies and human traditions, but we don't have the right to follow them. There is only one person who gave his life to forgive us transform us, and bring us to himself. There is only one way. There is only one hope. To follow other philosophies is to try to rob God and Jesus of his supremacy over all of life. We're going to see as we go through this passage, how do we use our knowledge of Christ to contrast and compare against a teaching, a philosophy that is being brought into the church so that we can know whether it's worth following. And that's the confusing thing about it is right along all these false teachings and philosophies and programs that should be rejected, there are others that are good and helpful and encouraging and, and, and scriptural and Christ-centered. How are we going to differentiate between the two? And it goes back to Paul's main point, if it's not according to Christ. It is an empty and vain philosophy. And so the the importance for us is to say, okay, how do we know what's according to Christ? Who is Christ? What has he done? What has he accomplished? Who is he? So that I can clearly compare him against everything else in my life. Christ truly is over everything. And as we explore this book, I hope you see with fresh eyes the beauty and glory of Jesus, and you experience his grace for your daily walk. As we look back at the philosophies, they say you should do more, and you could experience more. How those are hijacking Christian ideas that in Christ we can do more, and in Christ we do experience more, but it's in Christ. And as we go through this book, Paul wants us to open our eyes and see Just how beautiful he is, just how glorious the gospel is, and just how much it transforms everything in our lives. I asked at the beginning, ask yourself this question, is Christ over everything in my life? Is Christ the center of my universe? What gets you excited? When you think about your Christian walk, what do you give most credit to? Well, it was this one person or this book that that is the fuel for my Christian life. That person or that book should not be the center of the fuel for your Christian life. It can help you make Christ the center and fuel of your Christian life, but it should not be the center in and of itself. What is the center of your universe? What is your obsession? Is it Jesus Christ? And if it is, you'll find that it changes and transforms everything else. I'm looking forward to going through this book together and discussing it as we seek to make Christ over everything. Can we pray together? Lord, we ask that you would guide us in your word. Help us, Lord, to submit to you as the preeminent one, the supreme one, the ruler of all. Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a day and age when there is great competition for our hearts, great competition for our treasure. I pray, Lord, that you would unite our hearts around what you have done, what you have accomplished, so that we can find victory against in our battle against sin, so we can find fulfillment in pursuing you in our lives. Give us-